0: no clothes which is quickly i am not kidding when i say you know a lot of people don't believe me but i was i was pre-med in college i study a lot when i when i want to do something i've listened to your book four times this week on 1.4 speed and it is quickly becoming one of my favorite books it's it's frightening and it's it's i don't know how else, it, the way i wrote, word it is this is everyone knows about Dwight Eisenhower's military industrial complex speech, but it's so, it feels so old and it's in black and white that it, it almost, it's abstract. Your book was an actual, it's similar to David Vine's Base Nation. Completely different books, but somewhat similar in that it's a very modern kind of. Illumination of what you call the blob, the deep state, the entrenched power structure. And before I even forget, I did want to make a note of saying, as someone that has 1,187 audiobooks in my library, I wanted to tip my hat to you for having an incredibly bipartisan, balanced book. And in today's day and age, you can listen to a book and it's great and you get through 75%, then all of a sudden it comes out with. Trump is Satan or Obama is Satan and you're like oh, come on like do we have to do that and I truly I say that sincerely you did a beautiful job at representing the pros and cons of the last several administrations but I have now been rambling for 90 seconds so how about you uh, tell everyone about yourself Bill
1: well okay so Tommy first of all let me just say I don't use the word blob I probably don't say deep state yeah. uh, so you're already a bad reporter but um the truth of the matter is that uh, uh, I describe what I call the petro- perpetual war machine. And, uh, and and it really is a, a, a reasonable update of the concept of the military-industrial complex, which is to say that uh, we're hardly an industrial nation any longer. And most of the defense contractors, even the ones who produce metal, you know, also produce software, and software is what drives the American military today, and it certainly is the largest portion of the cost, even in aircraft and, and ships. Software is really the most expensive element. So I try to describe this entity, this perpetual war machine, this juggernaut, if you will, because I wanted to wrap my hand, uh, hands around the question of why do we have perpetual war why do we seem incapable of ending these wars and what are the dynamics that are behind uh, their their continuation and uh, so briefly i'll say that the perpetual war machine to me is is what has grown over the last 20 years since 911 that favors technology and the network over the human resources which are applied to uh, the military problem, more counter-terrorism. And that's really a reversal of what we saw in kind of the the heyday, if you will, of the war on terror, when hundreds of thousands of troops were uh, used to invade Iraq in 2003, when surges were undertaken in both Iraq and Afghanistan, with the idea being that somehow troops on the ground boots on the ground were going to make a difference in these conflicts and they might have in the end saved america's bacon or saved the american military's bacon just in the sense that those additional resources were needed to facilitate the withdrawal and facilitate you know the ending of a of a of a stalemate but as i say in this book you know here we are in 20 years later, and you can't really argue, no one could argue that Iraq or Afghanistan or any one of the 21 countries where we are bombing and killing today are safer than they were 20 years ago. So we've been fighting, uh, and now with the announcement of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, we're even ending fighting. But we haven't achieved any of the goals that we set out for ourselves when we started, which was we're going to eradicate al-Qaeda. Well, that hasn't been done. Uh, We're going to decimate the Taliban. That hasn't been done. And we've seen the emergence of the Islamic State, ISIS, that now is not only a powerful force in places like Afghanistan, but is spreading rapidly throughout Africa and the Middle East. So the effort is disconnected from the result. The effort has its own momentum, it has its own, it has autonomy. And and why I call it a machine is that it is also increasingly invisible to the American public. I mean, most Americans, have no connection whatsoever to the military. And certainly the fact that we are at war and we have soldiers deployed all over the planet, uh, it is ob- most people are oblivious to that. It's hardly covered in the news media. And, um, and the human resources that are applied are increasingly uh, lower and lower. So let's take Afghanistan as an example. Joe Biden says we're gonna withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, and yet at the same time, we're not really ending fighting, because the the preponderance of the means of fighting has shifted from boots on the ground to this worldwide network. So the targeting takes place in South Carolina and Tampa, Florida. The intelligence analysis and collection takes place in, in at Fort Gordon, Georgia. Uh, the 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 preponderance of the imagery is is an analyzed in Virginia and in Missouri. Uh, you have this this dispersed magnificent worldwide network that supports a very few number of trigger pullers of fighters on the ground in places like Afghanistan or Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Somalia, Niger, and on and on. And this. A uh, shift in ratio, where for every one trigger puller on the ground, for every one soldier, that there are probably tens of thousands of people behind them—other uh, soldiers, uh, civilians who work for the Defense Department, and of course contractors—the most important new element of this military capability—that that really has has been the change that has occurred since nine eleven, and we forget. That in these two decades that have transpired since nine eleven, so much of this technology is new: a global internet, a, a, a an ability to fly drones anywhere on the planet, uh, uh, precision guided weapons which are which are guided by satellite coordinates rather than by. Uh, lasers or by optical means. So, essentially it means that you don't really need to be on the ground if you've got good coordinates. I mean, if I wanna kill Tommy Kerrigan, I wanna basically find out where he is with great precision and that's done from units that are, you know, in New Mexico, in New York, in Virginia, in Hawaii, you know, whenever they essentially come up in the schedule of being the overwatch for the operations that are going on in the Middle East and Africa. And that system, that worldwide system, which only the United States possesses, which only the United States operates, has really matured in 20 years to the point where when Donald Trump decided in January of last year that he was going to kill the Iranian general Soleimani in Baghdad, it wasn't really a question of, hey, guys, can you do it? It was really more a policy question of what were the implications. The assumption all along as the Trump administration deliberated this killing was that that the, that the machine knew what it was doing. And indeed, the machine had intercepted his communications, had drone overwatch, which li- literally watched him get on an airplane in, Be- in Damascus and land in Baghdad and get into his motorcade and drive out of the airport and they, where they killed him on the, on the airport access road uh, out, of, out of Baghdad International Airport. I mean, that machine was never questioned. And so we have this ability now to kill individuals, and that really is still our focus, ironically. Um, but I question whether or not it's actually achieving the strategic goals that we want. So I already talked about Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and ISIS, but really in a bigger picture, I wanna just say, you know, are we diminishing terrorism and are we even depleting the ranks of terrorist organizations? And I think the answer in both cases is no. So we have to bring these wars to a close because we're not getting anywhere, that's the reason. And we need to think of other means by which we're going to fight terrorism in the future. And I think that the only way we're gonna do that is to really appreciate and understand what the dynamics are behind this perpetual war machine. And then secondly, it's gonna be for the American public to engage itself in these military affairs because one of the ironies of this technologically driven backwards machine where so few people are on the ground is that it's also really invisible to the American public, and so therefore there's there's very few levers by which the American public is 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 engaged. So people are on the streets about race. They're on the streets about climate change. They're on the streets about so many issues. And yet we don't have a peace movement in America anymore. We don't have any kind of uh, anti-war movement. And the, and the reality is that in 2021, there are more Republicans who are in favor of ending U.S. military operations overseas than there are Democrats
0: yeah it's, it's so, so many so many things to touch on so I'm just gonna grab one pulling it out of the air yeah is i is i again I love the I love the balanced approach you take in your book where you bring up the uh, the 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 threat and danger of a, of a war that's so whitewashed and you know when you when you get the burger from the from the drive through box and oh it's a burger in a little box you don't see the cow being raised the factory farming you don't see the implant that the the diesel fuel and it, you don't see all you just see that and which is you know which is great hey I, I love it and but there's a danger when for i've had on drone operators on this podcast mq1 and mq9 uh, reapers and predators and um I mean, yeah, they talk about, yeah, you you go for your night shift and you come home and you tuck the daughter in, maybe play some Xbox, and it's... But at the same time, there is and this is this is the balance you put in your book. Is I mean, it is an achievement and a half. You know, when we only need one guy, and that guy can stay at home and operate the drone instead of sending 16 million Americans to the Pacific, where you're slaughtered on islands that no one can pronounce. I still can't Peleliu, Pele, I still can't pronounce it. It's. But then you know the dangerous side of that is we are so removed that we don't feel it. And moving from that, you, you, you talk about how we're also, if you will, we're almost moving the overton window of of what is an acceptable target. You you said it earlier, I was gonna say it, but you it's we are the machine is more concerned about their effort than the results, which is I mean, it's great for kindergartners, a for effort, but I mean, you know, in the real world there has to be results. You go into and I believe it's chapter eight, is convergence. Where it's, we move, we move. I I did listen to it four times this week.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot,
0: Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what
1: stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash offer. All lowercase. That's com slash special offer.
0: you move to where we're, we're changing the semantics of what is a target, you know, it's a war on drugs to a war on drug traffickers to a war on narco terrorists. And it's like, there it is. There's a thing. It's a war on this to it's a, well, you're a terrorist and you sell cocaine and that cocaine goes to this group and that group used HSBC banking and that, you know, helped this. Co- oh, you are now funding ISIS by moving the goalposts they can say that there are still an infinite number of targets and that to me is is terrifying because okay maybe we do bring every i mean god willing we bring everyone back on 9 11. we don't have to keep doing these surgical drone strikes which by the way you know when you kill one guy you'll leave out his four kids and his wife and now they all become insurgents and hey i don't blame them i how do you not by moving everything, it, it, are we moving out of the Middle East? Are we really ending war, or are we physically moving out of the Middle East? But are we just going to be engaging a new target? Are we going to see a rise, and all of a sudden, do we have to take on the cartels? Are they going to find something else to sink their teeth into, or is it going to move into the cyber domain? Are we going to have a new Cold War? In that, I mean, it's already going on that we need to fight China on every front in the institutions and in the in the airwaves. Do you think that is what we or the the perpetual war machine is that do you think that's what they're gearing up for because it it seems eerie that they're just leaving the Middle East. This isn't their. This isn't their. Well, we're
1: not leaving the Middle East. I mean, that you know, first of all, that's what's clear. Okay. You know, even fighting in Afghanistan will continue. Maybe not with American boots on the ground, but it'll continue. It'll continue with airplanes flying out of the Gulf. It'll. there airplanes flying out of Iraq and Jordan. Airplanes flying out of Turkey. Airplanes flying out of Uzbekistan and 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 the Caucasus. So. I, I don't I don't see an end to fighting. So the nature of that fighting shifts. And that's what really we're seeing in Africa and, and in other parts of the world where the United States continues to uh, pursue terrorists. Now, you bring up convergence. And, and one of the points of that chapter was not just how terrorism becomes a sort of resilient, self-licking ice cream cone that can that can produce any kind of enemy for the future. But also I compare the war on terror to the war on drugs. So the war on drugs is this, you know, now I think it's been going on for 50 years. And, um, and I don't think there would be anyone who would say really that we have done anything other than have a war on drugs, which is to say that uh, heroin, cocaine, uh, continue to find their way onto the streets of america in great abundance and so that here's the perfect example of where uh, the outcome is 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 separated from the effort. So we fight a war on drugs and uh, put resources into doing so. And I'm not arguing necessarily that that's a bad thing. I'm just arguing that we never ask ourselves the question whether or not we're actually achieving anything. And in every year in which we articulate the war on drugs, we say to ourselves, yes, you know, we need to not just Interdict the drugs coming into the United States. We also need at the same time to attack the root causes of what are drugs. Well, the root causes of what uh, drives the narcotics industry is not just the economic need of Colombia and other places where drugs are grown, including Afghanistan, by the way. It's the American market yeah <laughs> it's the western market and so let's enjoy let's address the root causes yeah. sure i think we should but yeah. but if we put all of the resources into the military and we put all the resources into the war then we're not really uh addressing the root causes and similarly i would apply the same standards to the war on terrorism which is to say that Is counterterrorism in the future, now that we've sort of adjusted ourselves to the reality that terrorism is probably going to exist forever, is counterterrorism of the future a law enforcement and security matter, or is it a military matter? And I think that there's probably a, a, a movement afoot uh in the pentagon and in military thinking that's sort of accepting that we need to apply more law enforcement legal and 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 developmental strategies but it's not going to happen as long as the military is the is the uh dominant institution and and gets the preponderance of resources and we sort of saw that in the last year over covid as well Mm -hmm. which is to say that um Everyone said, yes, look, see, this is what happens when we put too much emphasis on national security and not enough on public health. And it it was a great talking point. Everybody said it. But now the national security establishment has had its revenge and no one is talking about taking resources away from national security to put them into public health. No one is uttering that at all. So a year ago, everyone was saying, yeah, we need to reorder our priorities. And now it's like, nah, forget that. We, we're going to be back to military first and national security first. So this is a juggernaut. It, 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 is, it, it, it is a... a There's no one at the controls, per se. Uh, I don't think that anyone goes to sleep at night in the Pentagon and says, we've achieved another day of fooling the American people. I think they are doing what they are told to do, and they are doing it as best as they can do it. And they are doing it more and more efficiently. But efficiency does not necessarily equal success. So the truth of the matter is that My iPhone of today is better than my iPhone of yesterday. And my iPhone of tomorrow is going to be better than my iPhone of today. More efficient, better apps, better everything. But does it make me a better person? Does it make me a better communicator? Does it make our society a better society? And we know that the answer is no. And that is exactly what we have with the military as well.
0: So yeah I mean I can get a 4K webcam I can get some uh, I can get some overhead lighting but I'm the same stumbling idiot you know is Man, it's it's I feel like this this episode is quickly going from geopolitics and the war state down to a philosophical sense. Is the whole purpose of this thing? Do we just are we all just keeping ourselves busy? I mean, what's the from the Bhagavad Gita? Before Enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water, buckets of water. After enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water, you know? Is Sisyphus really pushing the boulder up every day? Is he miserable or is he in heaven? He's got there's nothing you know when a video game sucks is when you beat it a video game's fun when you just can't beat it, and you got the grind, you got the grind. Man, is, is that what it is? Are we all just keeping ourselves busy? But you're right. I don't think there's a guy twirling his mustache a mile under the Pentagon, you know, some Dick Cheney clone saying, it's all coming together. It's it seems like, yeah, you we're all just they're doing their part that they've been trained to do, and you know, and what are you doing? Do I want to send five guys over there get killed, or do I want to have one guy piloting a drone? Well, there you go. You don't want to kill an American life. Beautiful. Can I, you know, now I carry one bunker buster that weighs 20,000 pounds or can I outfit 10 dams with dumb bombs and little lasers on them? Oh, okay, we're doing it more efficiently. You know, can we, do we have to send CIA agents there to follow Soleimani? Oh no, we can just follow his metadata. It's just becoming more and more efficient, but to what end? And do they look further than the, than the concept or the phenomenon of blowback? Are they just playing whack-a-mole infinitely? Is, is, is that so, what's going to go on?
1: Before I answer that question, Tommy, I sure. want to elaborate on one point sure. because there is a winner
0: defense contract. The winner
1: is Washington.
0: Yeah, defense contract. Right?
1: The national security establishment, not just the defense contractors, okay. but the consultants, the, the 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 experts, the bloviators on TV, et cetera, et cetera. They are the winners. There's no question that they are the winners. Washington is the winner in this in this uh, you know, bizarre of of the theater of war and they always are the winners because no one is ever held accountable and they move from job to job and they move from consulting gig to consulting gig and lobbyist effort to lobbyist effort and it doesn't matter who's in office and it doesn't matter uh what what where we're fighting or what we're fighting they're the they're the same people so right now you've got these guys who are like big names big big Influencers, I believe we call it in this modern era on Twitter. You know, I I, I did this little research. Uh, you know, John Brennan has mm-hmm. nine hundred twenty-four thousand followers on Twitter. Uh, John Cypher, a former CIA guy, has two hundred one thousand f- followers. Mike Hayden has two hundred ninety-two thousand followers, and I'm thinking to myself these are the architects of the failure of our national security system. And they are the most influential people right now talking about national security, constantly telling us what should be when really they are never really held accountable for what was. So the very people who have, who brought us nine 11 20 years ago, are still the people who are telling us how national security should be run. That's an insane system. And when Joe Biden became president and chose Lloyd Austin to be the secretary of defense, retired four-star general, what? We can't find a competent civilian to be the secretary of defense. The truth of the matter is that it doesn't really matter if it's Lloyd Austin or some other general, they're completely interchangeable because I would defy anyone in America to tell me what bad, lloyd austin ever won in iraq or afghanistan what war he ever won in iraq or afghanistan the guy was the commander of u.s forces in iraq when the united states withdrew in 2011 we're back because we misassessed the entire situation on the ground and yet this is the person we choose to be uh uh the secretary of defense which means literally that the fox our guy our guy are guarding the hen house so so there is a winner and i think it's it's not it's not as simple as you say the defense industry you know yes of course everybody makes a profit including nbc and fox mm-hmm. news and msnbc as well everyone makes a profit that's not the point The winner really is Washington. The winner really is the National Security Establishment. And the National Security Establishment is never held accountable for the result. Never held accountable for the result. Not held accountable for 9-11, not held accountable for the WMD failure in Iraq, not held accountable for their misassessment of what was going to happen after Saddam Hussein was deposed, not held accountable for our failure to eradicate uh, al-Qaeda or the Taliban in Afghanistan, not held accountable for ISIS, not held accountable.
0: Yeah, it's it's it's. I was going to say, yeah, I was just thinking civilian, civilian secretary of defense. I mean, the last one, at least in my limited knowledge, would be McNamara, right? He was the CEO. No, no,
1: no. There were, I mean, Ash Carter under, under uh, um, Obama, Leon Panetta. I mean, you know, Chuck Hagel under Bush. I mean, there have been civilians. And, and though Chuck Hagel ended up being a terrible Secretary of Defense because he didn't have the managerial skills, he's the perfect example of a veteran of the military who was a senator who, who in theory, was exactly the model of the kind of Secretary of Defense that we wanted and needed. but. I'm not arguing that the Secretary of Defense needs to be Al Sharpton or or Jesse Jackson. I'm I'm arguing that the Secretary of Defense needs to just be a genuine civilian because our country is supposed to be run on the principle of civilian control of the military. And civilian control of the military means that let's just say bill arkin was the secretary was of defense that i would say to the generals you know i've heard your argument but i but but for the good of the country for the good of america in a bigger sense for the good of the economy for the good of our health i'm i'm, I'm saying no but when you have the military in charge then the military is only offering military solutions and we could get into a discussion tommy about the uh, uh the what's happening to the American military because right now they're so gaga for climate change and, um, fighting extremism and incorporating transsexuals into the military, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that they could hardly find their rifles if they had to. And that's the American military today as well. So the culture of the American military is also important. So you have this kind of three types of militaries within the American military today. The military that's fighting in Afghanistan and the rest of the Middle East and Africa, that's kind of the special ops, drones, uh, covert operations, intelligence part of the military. Then you've got this ginormous uh, Army, Marine Corps, ground force, uh, conventional warfighting uh, thing, and they're all like flying around with their flags, saying Russia and China, and and give us, you know, give let us let us get let us be on the field, coach. Come yeah, on, we want to play. Yeah, yeah, and then there's this third military, which is this politically correct military, which uh, shifts and changes with every uh, uh, flavor of the month in Washington, and it and and, and it hardly you know, it hardly is doing military things. I mean, yesterday, I am not joking you, uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security announced the new initiative of the Department of Homeland Security for climate change. So a department of our government that costs us $50 billion a year, created to fight terrorism and protect us from terrorism, has now found another uh objective to be part of its mission creep and you know 10 years from now when we have a terrorist attack in the united states or when something really bad happens or when we haven't solved the immigration or border problem etc cetera, etc cetera, people are going to say yo yo we need to get we need to get that department of homeland security back to basics but why aren't we saying it now and why aren't we saying it as well about the military that also is the perpetual war machine because again they sort of operate on their own they're autonomous Mm -hmm. they're you know they're they're autonomous
0: it's it's but you're right it's washington's the winner so what's going to happen when there's another another 9-11 in 2040 and we're going to say we got to get back to you know no more mr nice guy you gotta you know stop pulling the punches we got to open up the black sites again (laughs) not that they ever closed but by then A whole new generation has come and everyone that's screaming, hey, I remember when I was 11 during 9-11. They said this, but by then you're old and no one cares. And the machine keeps – it's like what they say about fusion research. Fusion fusion research is job security. We'll have it finished in 40 years. And by the time that 40 years comes up, you go, oh, we didn't finish it. I'm retired. But we got some new guys coming in and they say that we can have it ready in 40 years. No, it's just – it's job security. It's – it's going to keep going and going and going. And by the time it all circles back and we're at deja vu, it's not going to matter. There's going to be a new crop of people coming in and the checks are going to keep going and the machine's going to keep growing. And how do you Well, we you know, one of, the,
1: one of the implications, Kami, of fighting for 20 years is, of course, that you have to keep training and mm-hmm. re-educating the new cadre of military people who come in. So in 2019, as an example, for the first time... The soldiers were enlisting in the Army and the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Air Force who weren't even born on 9-11. So there are people now in the military like, oh, uh, let's say just, it's been 20 years, so probably close to 90% of the people in the military have their entire careers only fought the war on terrorism. So then so in 2018 when the Pentagon announced we're going to now shift to great power competition we're going to shift to Russia and China it really was more of a statement that said we have to get everyone in the American military retrained and reoriented towards conventional warfare mm-hmm. and 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 so I don't I don't, I mean, yes, it's the case that in 2003 and in short periods thereafter, there were tanks on the ground in the Middle East. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if we were really honest with ourselves, we would have to even look at China and Russia and ask ourselves the question as to whether or not we will ever use ground forces in conflict in those areas. I mean, in a real war, yes, of course, the United States is going to posture against Russia over Ukraine and Russia is going to posture against the United States and NATO over Ukraine, But let's just imagine for a moment if there were a real war with China, if China decided that it wanted to expand out of its own territory and take over, you know, Nepal, take over the Soviet, the Russian Far East, etc., I don't think we're going to be fighting a ground war. No, Because today with air power and missiles and precision guided weapons the ability even to mobilize the forces to get them to a port to get them to an airport to get them to an airfield is going to be almost impossible Mm -hmm. and there are a limited number of those assets so therefore everything is going to be fought in this sort of long distance remote warfare and yet at the same time we're still spending the ponderance of our military dollars on ground forces it makes no sense
0: if if i just thinking if i could if, to play dev, i agree with what you're saying but to put my mind in in their viewpoint maybe it's kind of like when you're in like the 30s when skyscrapers were going up in manhattan every other week and they're all beating each other out by 10 20 feet you have to build the the, you could say the ground forces are the first 900 feet of the building like it you kind of you you have to do that just to get on par and then you raise up the the spire or the the pole or the the tip of the building and it's that's that's where the the battle is won without it you almost can't posture so just playing devil's advocate maybe you have to sort of fill out all the ground forces uh, you know check all the boxes if you will although it doesn't make sense cuz you're right this isn't world war 1 we're not putting everyone on trains and you know this isn't the the kaiser wilhelm's army you know the the schlieffen plan you know th- we're not doing this thing it's once you start seeing with the satellites that are 30,000 miles up using infrared and you see all of them getting onto their their apcs you're just going to hit that with a direct ammunition it's going It's not gonna be anything like that. It'll be. It'll, there was an Onion article in like 2005, and it was like, you know, when World War III breaks out, it'll be an exceptional several hours of conventional weapons before the thermonuclear holocaust. Because that's where it will go. It's like what Eisenhower said: the, a general will never not use everything they have. And if you're losing, and your country's falling, and you, let's say you're China, and you were trying to expand, and it's not working, and now your hundred-year plan is falling straight on its face. You're not going to not use what you have. And if you've got a couple, what is it, uh, Fong Deng or Dong Feng hypersonic missiles and you've got some thermonuclear warheads on them, you're going to go out and you're not going to go out being disgraced. So it's going to be a conventional buildup with some ground forces waving the flags. It will very quickly turn into a nuclear winter within a half an hour.
1: Well, I think you're wrong. Okay. But let's look at it in the broad sweep. So. Uh, in the 1940s, not so long ago that we can't conceive of it, you know, we didn't have an air force. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there was a model of the military, Army and Navy, and that model had pretty much persisted for a couple of hundred years. And then all of a sudden, the model of the military shifted and, and air forces emerged. And in the last two decades, we've seen another shift with the emergence of a credible cyber force. Uh, the design of the military and the emphasis of the of of fighting has it changes. It changes over time, and it will continue to change. And we we the the peak of the nuclear era was probably around 1967. That's when the U.S. Uh, had the largest number of nukes that it ever possessed the russians were about the same at the time and today there is one one tenth of the number of nuclear weapons that there were in in, in 1967 so the numbers have declined of course there are greater efficiencies and capabilities than there were in those days but i'm not i'm not so convinced of your model I, I think that what we will see in the future now with the creation of space force and the and, and though I think space force is stupid I, 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 I think it's the right approach, which is to say that the sacrosanct design of the American military around these services as they exist is not, is not set in stone. And and the emergence of cyber and space has become something that challenges the notion that warfare only takes place in these three dimensions, on water, on land, and in the air. And so I think that as the military continues to make these adjustments, that the the design of the military will shift and change over the next um, five decades or so. Whether the army, which is the most powerful institution within the U.S. military, uh, stands in the way of that evolution will be the crucial question. And my guess will be that, like many battles of the past in the uh, assimilation of new technologies into the military uh, there will be people who will argue that tanks are still the kings of the battlefield etc cetera, etc cetera. and there will be others who will argue that they don't have a chance of surviving and they should just go the way of other pieces of military equipment in the past, cavalry, et cetera, that just were no longer survivable and no longer is capable. I think that's going to happen. It may not happen in our lifetimes. Um, And unfortunately, we don't really have, or I don't know of, you know, great klaus witzian thinkers about the military who are articulating this future design but we need to have that thought and i think it's another good reason why we should really look more closely at perpetual warfare because uh the emergence of the global network which is also by the way that the sort of foundation of being able to fight against China or being able to fight against Russia or being able to fight against North Korea or Iran, that is really the ground forces that you describe. It's the first 10 stories of every skyscraper of the military. If you don't have the communications network and the internet connectivity and the databases behind it and the bandwidth to move the information in real time, then you can't fight. I mean, literally when NATO goes to fight in Afghanistan, it cannot do it without the United States refueling its airplanes, pro- providing it with the targeting coordinates, um, uh, helping it with the, the weapons on board its ships, I mean, its aircraft. You know, the United States has the global network that is the enabler of, of warfare, all throughout the world and the Chinese and the Russians of course would like to have their own networks and would like to have their own countries in their camp but they have no possibility of competing with the United States on a global scale and if we understood that and appreciated that better perhaps also then therefore we would understand and appreciate how our four main adversaries are also feeling incredibly insecure and and feeling like they need to compete with the united states in these domains so understanding perpetual war understanding the development of the network then becomes essential to understanding sort of the american future you know and it started in the mountains of afghanistan literally it started in the mountains of afghanistan we're All of a sudden you had special operations people operating in a part of the world where there was no plugs, so they couldn't plug anything in. They had to carry their own power with them. And there was no cell phones and there was no internet. So they had to uh, find a way to connect themselves to 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 the global communications infrastructure and the process by which that then unfolded. To be able to operate drones in in remote parts of the world, to be able to put soldiers on the ground in remote parts of the world where there weren't uh, was where there was no power and where there was no communications fabric and infrastructure had to be created in order to fight in in the mountains of Afghanistan. And that and that capability is exactly the same capability which facilitates our fighting in Burkina Faso and in Niger and in Mali and in Cameroon Uganda uh, uh, you know in the Central African Republic in in Somalia etc we're not we're not getting on the ground and plugging everything in I mean we got we got literally have to bring it all with us and increasingly because we don't want to bring it all with us we have to figure how to deliver it remotely mm-hmm. and delivering it remotely has become the American specialty, it really has. But to do it demands tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people And that's why the military is so expensive. That's why the military is so back ended, which is to say that most of the effort and resources are in the back end, not in the front end. And that's the design which we have acquired. And I don't think it's gonna change as we shift to Russia and China. I don't think it's gonna change in the future because as everyone knows, for you and I to have this podcast right now, we are, dependent upon the laptop manufacturers mm-hmm. the, the 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 zoom corporations the 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 internet service providers the the backbone companies that run the internet uh, the power companies that power us, etc. cetera. That back end of our society, that back end of our very activity that we're doing right at this moment is the same back end that's actually driving the military today. It's not tanks being manufactured in a plant. It's not ships or, or being built in a shipyard. It's not bombers being built in some plant Mm -hmm. it's really being driven by exactly the same thing that drives civilian technology
0: okay okay that's yeah that that's a that's a beautiful way to put it it's um in richard Rhodes' book dark sun the making of the hydrogen bomb there's a great little there's a great little like half chapter on curtis lemay talking about setting up strategic air command and going into europe and for him he wasn't even as worried about our the nickel plated bombers and enough you know uh, fission cores to put in the bombs, he was all about supply lines. I listened to it last night. He was saying Russia they don't need to take us out in the air if they can cut off our supply lines. So he was he said they basically had their own mini NATO. They took a bunch of troops, put them in civilian soldiers, and they carted around supplies in different trains, changed the uh, the schedules and the itineraries, but they made their supply lines three deep. And he was saying, you know, it's what will win the war is that we can basically turn on the gasoline faucet. Do we still have food and water for our soldiers' bellies full? That's what wins it is not. Yeah. yeah. And and to 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 pivot that, you can kind of see where things are moving we're posturing to africa where it seems there are a lot of the necessary minerals the rare earth metals, to keep this modern world going
1: you know uh, it's not about the a war for oil it's not about rare earth minerals sure. i mean i i get it that in theory uh, china's preponderance of control over rarefied metals is is of concern, just as China's economy, which creeps up on the United States all the time, is of concern so if you believe that there's a manifest destiny for the united states to be number one and we are and we are in so many ways right you know people still flood to the united states for tourism for medical care for education etc we are the country where most innovation originates etc at the same time there is a country on the planet china that is probably our true peer competitor Mm -hmm. not not morally not ethically not not spiritually i mean it is still a communist society and it still is a society that lacks basic human rights but if i'm a strategic thinker i would be lying to you if i said to you that we shouldn't concern ourselves with china yeah russia on the other hand it's a third world nation with an economy that's tiny and it happens to have a bunch of nuclear weapons so we have to deal with russia we have to deal with the problem of russia with its expansionism with its repressions uh you know with its autocracy but china is is really Mm -hmm. the competitor now we can approach China by saying, well, we need to find a way to uh, have a peaceful, compatible relations with China, or uh, we're gonna fight with China over the South China Sea Islands, and we're gonna fight with China over Taiwan, and we're gonna fight with China over Hong Kong, and we're gonna basically front end the military as the uh, uh, most important institution in dealing with China. And that would be a mistake. And so again, The perpetual war machine which ensures that national security is the most important consideration when in the case of China really the economy and 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 our adherence to the basic rights which we hold so dear to ourselves in the United States is the most important factor it 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 seems to me like we kind of have a back ass words way of dealing with China and it needs to be revised. I don't think it will be, because I think that uh, national security is this 800 pound gorilla that's not going away and not giving up any power, but maybe through climate change and maybe through economic negotiations, the United States and China uh, will be able to um, slowly move towards other priorities, towards uh, towards other uh, priorities now. When will that happen? I don't know. I don't think that Joe Biden has the uh, uh, the fortitude uh, or the or the, the courage to uh, really make a, a fundamental reordering of, of American priorities. And Washington certainly is a partisan mess that is not going to be uh, thinking of the American century ahead in any way that 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 is uh, something that we can be proud of. Uh, but but I do feel like beyond the question of perpetual war itself, that the national security aesthetic, the, this, this this part of our uh, culture of nuclear weapons, of the cold war, of, of the war on terror, of war, 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 and more war is basically uh, handicapping us into moving forward in other useful ways.
0: I did. I've got you for for 10 more minutes. So I did want to touch on what I thought was maybe the most interesting part of your book. It's all fascinating, but there's one part that really kind kind of twisted my mind a little bit. And it was the very nature of these systems as we move away from the the patent in as in his, you know big tank columns and it's more towards the as you said it's the manufacturing, it's the software, it's the contractors, the chefs, it's the people delivering everything and the and the the enablers that Obama yeah, yeah. was so surprised to learn about as we have this in, continually networked machine just like um just like the thad missiles and the patriot missiles yeah. you know. That direct challenge to North Korea, Iran, China is a, it's at their core, it's a challenge to who they are, because there's a great thing you said, a lot of them, the military is not just to defend the nation, it's also to terrify the citizens and to terrify young men into being uh, subservient to the power, their very power. It can't just like our. You could say, uh, you know, what Reagan would always argue was that our our free flow of information and capitalism intrinsically was opposed to the Soviet Union. You, they didn't have that free flow of information. In an odd way, you could maybe argue. I don't know if I could. but I think I could try. Is that the very structure of our our systematic our our war system could enact more of a change in the world than the actual system itself because it demands the other nations if they want to play on the same field of us if they want to build up the next 10 stories of their skyscraper they have to have that that systemized machine that networked machine that would require a fundamental change in how their societies are run teaching teamwork,ing teaching openness and I don't know if they would be willing to do that. And that might be how we beat them is they're not willing to, you know, be like, how would we beat like a team from, I don't know, like Israel in football, they'd be like, oh, well, they don't train on the Sabbath. So we train on the Sabbath, you know, it'd be something like that. It's a fundamental change to who they are, that I either it's going to pull them out of their oppressed systems, in which case they will change or they will have to stay in there, in which case we will be dominant. It's to me, I thought that was maybe the most fascinating part. Is, is how that would change them.
1: So, you know, I've been uh, doing national security since I was in the army, which was 1974, is when I joined the army. So I've been doing it now for almost 50 years. And, um, you know, I remember when I went through basic training and initial intelligence school that, you know, we learned how to read a map. And and today, you know, you have GPS and nobody knows how to read a map anymore. And in fact, for the first time in the last couple of years, there has been additional work done on the whole point, uh, on the whole possibility of what's called the GPS denied environment. So if cyber warfare were able to knock out GPS, how would these soldiers know where to go? And... Technologies really do evolve and change. And those technologies have interesting and important social implications. You know, I'll give you another example and then I'll move on to your major point. You know, I don't think I could tell you the telephone number of my two daughters.
0: <laughs> I don't know my dad's. I know my mom's. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that
1: crazy? So we we, we literally <laughs> live in a, in, a, in a punch code society. I mean, we we, there are things that used to be so essential to to, to our lives, and, and now, you know, if I lost my phone, I, I, I don't know how I would contact my kids. I, I literally do not know what their telephone numbers are. So, in this changed world, in this networked world, the the ability to operate this network and the ability to flourish within this network is a democratizing process. So the truth of the matter is that if you're in Iran or North Korea or China, you're spending an, an enormous amount of your secret service, secret police time just trying to keep young people from acquiring information on the internet mm-hmm. because because that information is dangerous to the regime and a free flow of information is dangerous and so they can't really cut themselves off from the internet you know there have been attempts on the part of Russia and, and Iran to create their own internet but you know it's bullshit because <laughs> we, we live in a global <laughs> society and everyone is connected to the same network network and the same capabilities. Well, now let's extend that a little bit into the military because I'm going to say something that's optimistic. You know, we're we're now in the era of precision guided weapons. And, um, and I think we should give them to everyone. Mm-hmm. We should give them to Pakistan. We should give them to India. We should give them to China. We should give them to Russia. Because The ability to operate those precision-guided weapons demands (laughs) democracy. Demands democracy because it demands decentralized execution. It demands uh, uh, technical training. It demands a democratizing process, it's a democratizing system. And if all of a sudden these countries could only operate precision-guided weapons and were no longer had truncheons and bullets and the and 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 pliers to pull people's fingernails out but they only had precision guided weapons it would be a democratizing process so we see this i talk about this in one of the chapters in the saudi war in yemen a freaking country that has spent more money per capita than any other country on the planet buying military equipment. They have the best airplanes America can buy. They have the best everything that that, that, that the United States has provided them. And they are not able to fight in Yemen. They are not able to defeat a few thousand rebels in Yemen. And the reason is that they are not training their young men in the technical skills or the leadership skills that are required to operate that machinery. They have to import contractors and surrogates to even be their military on the ground. I mean, I think that there are more Sudanese fighting in the Saudi ground forces, even Colombians fighting in the Saudi ground forces, than there are Saudi young men. and. And this really is the prime example of how uh, a country like Saudi Arabia is not gonna be able to step into the next generation unless it educates its young people and and democratizes its systems and decentralizes its decision-making so that people are able to actually move with and live with the technology that's at their disposal. So, as these governments in China and the Middle East and the autocracies in Russia, etc, spend their time and energy suppressing youth so that they are not having access to these technologies, they are essentially writing their own death warrants. So to me, precision technology, et cetera, is indeed the the future and the democratizing element, even on the military side and those capabilities that we've developed in the United States military of this decentralized decision-making and decentralized execution, that is really the main innovation that has both created perpetual war, but also at the same time uh, has allowed us to fight in so many different places. And that, And that technology, again, if we were able to actually give it to our allies, um, I think it would have a positive effect. And, And unfortunately, what we've done instead is we've tried to reform the Iraqi and Afghanistan militaries to look like our militaries and we built these magnificent military barracks and gymnasiums and cafeterias so that they would be a military just like us and it's not what their society can Digest. It's not going to be sustained beyond the United States being there. A friend of mine in the Air Force once said to me, "When we bug out of Afghanistan, that country is going to have the most magnificent set of gyms in the third world." And it's true. We built them. We spent billions of dollars on this physical fitness. And but the truth of the matter is that that might not be the model that is conducive for actual. Uh, for that actual country. But I think as we get to the place where everyone has this similar military capability and model, the precision model, it's going to be a process by which uh, we will see peace.
0: So instead of the pamphlets, instead of the B fifty twos dropping the pamphlets saying that, you know, you know, come to the good side. We should just start dropping uh, JDAM kits.
1: <laughs> we should just, just start dropping laptops. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, and, and and more cell phones yeah. because because ultimately that's what's going to make people want to be part of the globe.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you just—I mean, seriously—if you just dropped like a hundred thousand iPhones with some unlimited satellite service. That would probably enact a greater change than anything else. I have kept you for an hour. I did want to say we won't, We don't need to go into it. For anyone listening, I, I recommend books all the time. This is legitimately one of my new favorite books. Go get it. If you put it on 1.4 speed, you can listen to it in a day. I know that because I've listened to it four days in a row. Then
1: you sound like Mickey Mouse, though. But it's actually
0: good. That. Your narrator's voice is deep enough that it actually converts well. It's <laughs> there, there's a whole trust me, there's a whole science to it. You can't listen to all of them fast. Some of them. Are, this one's good. Yeah. Um, the very ending, the epilogue on coronavirus. I'm not gonna spoil it for anyone listening. I loved it. it it's I mean it's it's crazy because it's fact. It it, it reads like. It reads like the beginning of a zombie movie. NORAD, the the, the closing, and the, the military opera, the blue and the silver teams. I I loved that. I won't spoil it. If you want to hear about it, you got to get the book. It's an awesome ending. It could be a script for a movie, and I hope it is. Um, Bill Arkin, thank you, my man. is an awesome book. It will be stickied in the top comment. It will be in the description. I highly, highly recommend it. I haven't recommended a bad book yet. I love it. It's one of my new favorites. I would be honored to have you on again with any of your other books. I'll send you an email. You don't need to confirm or reject and break my heart right now. It's, But thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. I cannot say it enough. I'm fanboying. I loved your book. It is It is up for anyone that listens to this podcast. It's up there with with Raven Rock in terms of, of my favorites or uh, The Ghost, James Jesus Angleton. It is up there with those. It is an instant classic for whatever that's worth. I love it. Now I'm running in circles and making a fool of myself. So thank you. And Okay, I and would. the
1: check's in the mail, Tommy. Thanks
0: a lot. Yeah, yeah, know. You, hey, you, nice you said the quiet part out loud. What are you doing? What are you doing, man? <laughs> I'll send you an email when it's up. I would love to have you on for another book, but I will let you go because I have now kept you for an hour. Thanks. Thank you so much. God bless. God bless Hey, America. thanks for having me
1: on. Absolutely,
0: thank you. man. It was awesome. Thank you. God bless thanks. America, everybody. Stay safe. Bye. Bye-bye.